I, uh, I would imagine many of you have seen the 2014 film entitled The Impossible that tells the story of Henry and Maria Bennett who were vacationing in Indonesia in 2004 when the island was hit by a massive tsunami. When the waves hit their hotel, the entire family was swept away, uh, swept away along with everyone else. And when Maria emerges, hundreds of yards away from their hotel, she can only find her son Lucas. Her other two sons, Simon Thomas, along with her husband Henry, uh, are nowhere to be found. But she also has suffered severe chest injury and leg injuries. She cannot walk. She can barely breathe. And locals uh, transfer her to a hospital further inland. At the same time, her husband, Henry, also survived, though he was swept away to some other part of the island, and he finds his other sons, Simon and Thomas, and they set out on a frantic search to find uh, their, uh, their wife and mother and their uh, brother and son, Lucas, not realizing that they've already been taken to the hospital. But the plot follows their feverish efforts to search through all of the debris and retrace all of the uh, pathways of the flood while they're battling their personal injuries, battling hunger and thirst all along the way, but driven by a determined love and commitment to one another for each and every lost family member because of that deep love, they will not give up on their search. That's a kind of a fitting parable, if you will, an analogy of the kind of love and the kind of determination that we find in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 18 when it comes to fellow believers who are sometimes swept away into sin or led away into error or those who just simply stumble in the many ways that people may seriously stumble in sin in their walk with the Lord. This is the kind of determined love that the Lord would have us to have. Those who stumble and stray, the Lord makes it clear that His desire is for every believer to seek after them with compassion and love. Now, it comes to us, as I said, in Matthew chapter 18 as a part of an overall discourse. This is one of the five major discourses that, that uh, break up the Gospel of Matthew. You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have the uh, discourse on discipleship. You have the Uh, parables of the kingdoms. You have the Olivet Discourse, obviously, in 24 and 25. And then you've got this chapter, chapter 18, which is another major uh, discourse. It has sometimes debated uh, what exactly to call it, but we know how it all begins. It begins in verse 1 with a question about greatness. You might say, perhaps this is the discourse on spiritual greatness. And Jesus, responding to that question goes on to refer to greatness as child-likeness, which uh, we defined in weeks past as that kind of recognition of your own deficiencies, whether it's of knowledge or strength or whatever might mark a a child. And, And Jesus makes it clear that it's this kind of humility that allows us to enter into his kingdom, but it's not just the starting place, it's actually the goal. The goal of our spiritual life is to maintain that kind of humility all the way throughout our entire walk with with the Lord. 
That that is, according to Christ, the mark of spiritual greatness. After kind of establishing that point in the opening verses, though, Jesus goes on to begin discussing in more practical ways what that humility looks like uh, as we as we live our life, beginning with a sensitivity to the weaknesses of others such that you're not uh, somehow a cause of stumbling to a brother or sister because of your hypocritical example and the way you're living your life. And that naturally in verses 8 and 9 involves taking sin very seriously in your own life, which Jesus discusses there. But the concern that you have for your brother and sister isn't limited to just not wanting to be the, the instrument of their stumbling, the source of their fall. But it also involves that when they do stumble, for whatever reason, one of the marks of this humility, one of the marks of this spiritual greatness will be an eager effort to pursue them. As long as it takes, no matter what the, the pain, no matter what the obstacles, you want to see them restored to fellowship. That's Jesus' message beginning in verse 10, going down through verse, t, uh, verse uh, 14. Listen as I read this for us this morning. Uh, we see in Matthew 18, 10, see to it, or excuse me, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. For what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that, did, that, that never went astray. So, it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is clearly expanding on his discussion about these stumbling or these straying believers. And he refers to them here. We know he's still talking about them because he refers to them the same way he's been referring to them throughout this entire passage as little ones or as children. This is what he, he, he said back in verse 2. He called a child. He put the child in the midst of the apostles. And he says, unless you turn and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of, of heaven. And for some people, that is... That is just too insulting for them. That, that is too much. They cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because they refuse to humble themselves and consider themselves like a child. But for those who do, Jesus says, you become a part of his kingdom, a part of his family. You become his very own precious children, his very own little one, if you will. And so... It's not surprising then that God would not want you to despise one of these little ones, one of his children. By despise, by the way, he just simply means to look at them as without value, to, to disregard them in that sense. And particularly given the entire context of what he's discussing here, what he has in mind is thinking that if they are led astray or if they stumble, it's no big deal. You, you don't think of this person or that person as a, as a significant loss when they wander away from the faith because you're not thinking very highly of them to begin with. That's the idea behind despise. Jesus says you shouldn't. 
You dare not think of one of my little ones as so insignificant that when they just don't show up on a, on a Sunday or, or a, a, a few Sundays, when they just sort of disappear from the fellowship, you kind of take note of it, but you don't really think it's a big deal. You might be tempted to, that, to, to think that way. Maybe outside of your immediate circle of friends, the group that you sort of fellowship with or connect with on a Sunday, the ones that you have common interest with, common uh, relationships, common hobbies, maybe common career. Maybe your children play together or you've done things in the past. Those are your circle. That's the ones that you really, really care about. You take note maybe if they're missing, but, but when these others go astray... It's really not that important to you. It's not a big loss if they're no longer around, at least to you. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't despise them. Don't think so contemptuously of one of my children. Now, this obviously has implications for you and I, because if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, you've seen this happen. You've seen people walk away from fellowship. If you were saved in high school, then you saw some of your friends when they went off to college no longer wanting to be a part of the church. They wandered away. If you were saved in young adulthood, then you see some of your friends whenever they enter into the sort of the crunch of their careers or in the middle of their families, you've seen them fall away, no longer interested in the church or some wander away later on in life because of the pressures of life and the disappointment of failed dreams or the loss of loved ones, the monotony of everyday existence, or maybe just because of trials in general in any season of life, they lose hope and they wander away. And so if you've been a part of the church, you, ha- you know this, you could name these people, they come to your mind. But Jesus wants you to understand that you, you cannot shirk your responsibility in these situations. He wants to motivate you to pursue people who wander from the truth, to go after those who stumble. And in doing that, he gives us a number of reasons, a number of of ways that we should be thinking about our responsibility to our brothers here. The first that Jesus gives, the first warning, if you will, not to be dismissive or negligent of our support for struggling believers, one of the reasons that we need to be engaged, he says, is because in verse 10, their angels have access to God Do not despise them, he says, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. That's your first reason for not thinking them unimportant, not thinking of them as insignificant, because they have angels who are assigned to watch over them, and these angels have direct access to God. They are always seeing the face of my Father who's in heaven. That's a, that's a kind of a phrase that talks about your particular access to some ruler or some emperor. They're not just sort of, sort of extraneous members of the court. They're not just some sort of loose affiliation with his administration. They're not just some sort of official minister in some sort of official capacity. But God gives these angels special access to him. They see his face. 
And presumably, they see his face for the sake of communication. Either, on one hand, they're communicating to God, uh, giving him reports or pleading the cause of these little ones who are their responsibility for ministering, or they're receiving direct communication from him so that they can respond and act quickly. They're always before the face of the Father, and they always have this kind of access. Now, uh, don't read that, by the way, and assume that he's talking about some sort of special guardian angel for every single believer, a particular angel that God assigns to you whose sole responsibility is to be occupied with your particular struggles or interest or whatever it might be. That is not necessarily what's behind this verse or the rest of Scripture. When you look into Scripture and you see the work of angels, what you see most often is one angel serving multiple people. Like in Daniel chapter 10, uh, 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 Daniel is visited by an angel and the angel along the way shares with him the story of a little skirmish that he had to battle through to get to Daniel and the skirmish involved uh, an angel, what he calls a prince, who was apparently assigned to, or I should say really a demon who was, who was uh, taking, if you will, uh, authority over or trying to assume authority over an entire nation. The, the prince of Persia, he calls him. And he said that when he encountered this skirmish, this prince of Persia was doing battle with Michael, who was the prince of Israel. In other words, one angel who was, who was specifically assigned to the entire nation of Israel. Or in 2 Kings, when you see a whole battalion of Syrian soldiers who surround Elisha and his servant... God, we're told, sends an even greater army of angels in flaming chariots who then surround the Syrian army, an entire host of angels watching out for Elisha and his servant. 2 Kings 19, we know the story of a single angel who was sent to destroy an entire uh, uh, encampment of 185,000 men who had encamped against Jerusalem. Or even Genesis 19, when two angels came to the rescue of Lot and his entire family, trying to bring them out from the destruction that was coming for that city. So over and over again, you see this pattern in Scripture, multiple angels who might be assigned to multiple people or a single angel who's assigned to multiple people. And of course, Hebrews 13 tells us that we're not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers for some have entertained angels unawares. That's probably a reference back to Genesis 19 and the hospitality that Lot showed to angels. But the plural there might imply that you could from time to time be attended by multiple angels who are coming to your aid. So there's not some sort of fixed assignment or some sort of set ratio of one angel for one individual in the sense of a personal guardian angel, but what Jesus is making clear is that God assigns angels to watch over his people and that these angels have direct access to God. And we know that these angels are here, are watching over us. They're sent, they're sent to protect us, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.14 Are they not all ministering spirits, that is the angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? That that is what angels 
are, are, are intended to do. They're, they're there to protect us. They're there to provide special guidance at particular times. And the point that Jesus is making is you cannot regard as insignificant any believer or, or their straying or their stumbling as unimportant or inconsequential because God has assigned these very important and powerful creatures to watch over these little ones. I, I, I learned recently um, that there are places that you can go to hire an entourage. Literally, it is uh, rent a fan or rent a crowd. Did you know those things existed? You can go out and for a couple thousand dollars, you can rent, you know, like four paparazzi, four big mega, mega fans and two bodyguards. And obviously people do this kind of thing because they want to give the appearance of being attended to by all of these people. They want to give the appearance of importance or, or prestige because of all these people who are attending to their needs. And I suppose if those uh, companies offered a couple angels, I would be in- interested, but not, not at that rate. But this is the idea that Jesus is saying here. This entourage, this, this grouping, it communicates the importance of these little ones. He, he's saying this, that these angels, this kind of entourage of angels who are attending to the interest of these believers ought to communicate to you how important they are. And so it would be ridiculous of you or ridiculous of me to look on any of God's children, any of God's believers, any of his little ones, and to think that they are not important if they fall away. Or if they're wandering away from the church, to think that it's irrelevant or insignificant. You and I have responsibility. You and I need to take that responsibility. You have been brought into connection or into fellowship or into some sort of relationship with somebody, you might have access to them or you might happen to bump into them somewhere along the way. You might find yourself in the place where God wants to use you as an instrument to bring someone back who's wandered away. And your attitude might be the attitude of Cain, who in Genesis chapter 4, when God came to Cain and asked, where is your brother Abel? You remember Cain answered, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? As if somehow, some way, he could skirt his responsibility or put it back on God and, and imply, well, that's your job. That's my, not, not my job. That's your job to keep my, my brother safe or to keep him close. Sometimes we take that attitude when people stray, that Cain attitude. Jesus would, would answer that question, though. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. It's not just the responsibility of God. It's not just the responsibility of your pastors and your leaders. It's everybody's responsibility to be on watch for these brothers and sisters because they are significant in God's eyes. So the first reason he wants you to understand that is just because of 
their prominence. They have these angelic sort of guardians and that that important connection ought to communicate to you just how significant they are to God. But that's not, that's not the only reason why we should go after these fellow believers. He gives us another one in verses 11 through 13. I really should say verse 12 through 13 because verse 11 is probably not in your Bible unless you have a, a King James version because uh, really that, that verse, when the King James was originally translated, there their quality of Greek text was rather limited and the text that they had available to them so many hundreds of years ago had inserted into it Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, but with more discovery of more manuscripts and better opportunity to examine them, it became clear that verse was just scribbled into the, into the margin of some scribe and somehow made its way erroneously into this passage. The text really picks up in verse 12, where Jesus gives us the second reason why we should seek after those who go astray. And he tells us there in verse 12, that it's because good shepherds seek out strays. What do you think, he says in verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that, that did not go astray. What do you think? That's kind of a rhetorical question because Jesus gives us the answer that everyone else would have been expected to give. Because everyone in that era understood the way that shepherds operated. And if a man had a hundred sheep, which would have been a sizable lot in those days... And if the sheep strayed, he would go after it. They, they would never think because they still have 99 that one doesn't matter. You might think that way, you know, in terms of your personal assets or your personal loss is 1%. It's not such a big deal. But that's not the way a shepherd, that's not the view of a shepherd. Because shepherds not only looked at these sheep as their possession, as their assets, but they had a bond with them. There was a kind of a connection that formed between the shepherd and the sheep. And so every one of them was precious to a shepherd. In fact, this was one of the rebukes against the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament in Ezekiel's day, that they didn't share that kind of bond. They didn't seem to have that kind of connection, that kind of concern for the sheep who were a part of their fold. Ezekiel 34 says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick You have not healed the injured. You have not bound up the strayed. You have not brought back the lost. You have not sought, but with force and harshness, you roll over them. And so they're scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. But the Lord goes on in verse 11, Ezekiel 34, for thus says the Lord, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among the sheep that have have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Down in verse 13, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. So Jesus brings up this, this whole issue of a shepherd and it would have been familiar to them not only because of their sort of cultural pastoral setting in Israel they would have seen sheep all over the hills all around them as they traveled 
But he brings up this issue of a shepherd because it would have communicated to them very clearly from their own understanding of God that God is a shepherd. This is one of his essential characteristics. He's a God who seeks the lost and the scattered. He's a God who, who binds up the broken. He's a God who strengthens the sick. He's the one who is celebrated in Psalm 23, the image of a shepherd, the good shepherd, who always cares for his sheep. He does that because, as I said, the image of a shepherd is an image of care and and concern. Shepherds had to develop this mentality. They had to have this. They had to prepare themselves to think this way because practically sheep are incapable of caring for themselves. They are some of the most incapable animals on the face of the earth, completely subject to their prey. They have almost no natural defenses and very little sense. And so there's no animal in the world who would be more pitied if it strayed. They have almost no instincts for survival to stay with the flock. They appear almost incapable of finding their own way back when they are lost. They're destitute of any kind of self-defense. It is said that when sheep go astray, they get so discouraged sometimes, they just lie down on the spot where they are and die. So these pitiful creatures is is the image that Jesus brings up. These pitiful creatures and how uh, vulnerable they are sort of generates within the heart of a shepherd the desire, the understanding, the heart to want to protect them. This is why the Bible uses this familiar image so often because of this caring relationship that's developed between the shepherd and the sheep. They have to have someone for their survival, and the shepherd understands that. And so when Jesus asks the question, they, they just intuitively would have understood, yeah, sure, the shepherd leaves his flock of 99. If he has a flock that size, he, he might have had some, some shepherd boys who he, who he could have left to maybe manage the, the flock while he was gone, or perhaps uh, kind of like we see in Luke chapter 2, where we see multiple shepherds out on the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. He might have combined his flock together with some other shepherds temporarily so that they could watch after them. But he, he leaves them all behind to go after this one. He ventures out on this search with all of its difficulties, with all of its rugged terrain. He would be climbing hills and going down into caverns. He himself probably would have been scraped up by all of the, the, the rocks and the uh, uh, cliffs, not to mention the bushes and the brambles. He would have left all of the sort of open pastures and the rolling hills, taking no thought for his own pain and his own comfort because he needed to seek out this vulnerable sheep. Laziness wasn't an option. Fear wasn't an option. He wouldn't stop looking. He wouldn't stop climbing. He wouldn't stop working. He wouldn't stop searching until he finds the sheep. This is Jesus' point. This is just what shepherds do. This is what good shepherds do. 
This is one of the reasons why you and I need to be engaged with this. We can't be worried about our own fatigue. We can't be worried about our own inconvenience. We can't be worried about our own discomfort. We can't be worried about our own sacrifices. We can't be worried about any of those things. We can't have the attitude of Israel's leaders in the Old Testament who, when a sheep goes astray, they probably told themselves, you know, it's really not worth the effort, that one. They're probably dead by now. Why even go out there? It's just such a huge wilderness out there. It's such a huge desert out there. They could be anywhere. I never know where to begin. I don't know where to look. I'm not going to bother. None of those were excuses for a good shepherd. None of those were excuses that God himself took. In fact, Jesus uses this parable in a different context in Luke chapter 15 to talk about his own efforts to come down out of heaven into this world and to suffer the way he suffered in order to seek out the lost. And he does all that to communicate that a ministry that is molded after the heart of God is a ministry that goes after the lost. It goes after the straying. It goes after those who are even difficult to pursue. And it does it because of compassion. Now, there's any reason, any number of reasons why these sheep might have gone astray. None of that's ever discussed. The Bible talks about all kinds of reasons people go astray. In Proverbs 5.23, it talks about their folly and their lack of self-discipline. It says, he who dies, excuse me, he dies for lack of discipline because his great folly has led him astray. So sometimes people just lack the discipline to maintain a faithful walk with God and they just give in to foolishness. Or Proverbs 10 talks about those who reject correction and reproof. It says, whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. So sometimes it's just a person that you've talked to in the past and they're just not listening and, they, and they're still not listening and they just go astray because they re- reject reproof. Or Proverbs 20 talks about those who are led astray because of wine or, or maybe some other substance. The wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Or Proverbs 12, people go astray because they get drawn in and enamored by the ways of the wicked. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Or Isaiah 47 warns you about trusting in your own wisdom and your own knowledge because that can lead you astray, not really trusting in the Lord. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. As you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. That is the heart of an attitude of a person who doesn't believe that God has anything to say about their life. They're trusting in their own wisdom and their own knowledge and they're led astray. Jeremiah 32, excuse me, 23, talks about those who are led astray by false prophets and deceptive doctrines. Behold, I'm against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and by their recklessness. You see, the point of this is it really doesn't matter how they're led astray. It doesn't matter how foolish they were. It doesn't matter whether they had already received rebuke. It doesn't matter. All of them are important. Every one of them is precious. 
And Jesus clearly expects you and me to love these little ones, to love these sheep, to love his children the same way that he loves them. And to pursue them the same way that he would pursue them as the good shepherd. Well, Jesus gives one final reason why you should seek out these fellow believers who go astray. In verse 14, he tells us it's because our Father feels a burden for every struggling believer. He feels a burden. It's really where he spells it out so clearly for us. See, so he says, it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's not God's will, full stop. You want to know what his will is about that person who strayed away? It's not his will. You want to know what God thinks about you and your responsibility for that person who's wandered away? It's not his will that they wander away. He does not want that to happen and therefore he wants you to be engaged and to be involved in calling them back. He, he communicates this over and over and over again. This is not the will of the Father that any of them would stray away, that any of them would be lost. John six thirty nine. this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of what He has given to me. That, that's a, a statement, obviously, of the electing purpose of God, but it's also a statement about Jesus fulfilling his calling to go out and to seek and to save the lost, to pursue them. And now, Jesus wants each one of us to understand this heart of God, this desire of God for each and every believer. Even those who, who stray and stumble, to know that we have a responsibility to go after them. I mean, this is the repeated call throughout the New Testament over and over again. James 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's he's talking about those who wander away from the truth. And it's not always clear what causes them to wander away from the truth. They They may have removed themselves. The verb there in James is reflexive. So it could be that they removed themselves or uh, as the form of the verb is written, it could be passive, meaning that someone led them astray. James in, in the opening chapter talks about people who are drawn into deceptive thinking about God whenever they are falling into trials, thinking that somehow God is tempting them or God is out to destroy them. They're going through a trial and someone comes along and begins to say to them, you can't trust God. He's not good. He's not perfect. And it causes them to stray, causes them to wonder. Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, this this is your responsibility to reach out with mercy, even though it's dangerous and dirty stuff. You, You go with fear, he says, showing this mercy, hating even the garment, lest somehow the filth of their life or the filth of their thinking rubs off on you. And yet still, even with all of that, you pursue them. 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Those who are losing heart, those who are temporarily overwhelmed with some stress and some battle, 
They've lost their spirit. They, they've lost their will to go on. They're faint-hearted in that sense. They're cringing and, and flinching and withdrawing on the inside because of all the overwhelming obstacles of life. Paul says you have to pursue them. You have to respond to them and go after them with encouragement, with reassurance. Or the weak, those who really don't have the resources to help themselves. That's what the word weak here basically means, spiritually and materially. But particularly those who are spiritually immature, they, they have to rely on others. They don't seem to be able to make it on their own. They have to have other people walking alongside of them. Sometimes that happens. And those people, when they are neglected, when they are left to their own resources, they tend to fall away. And we forget about them. And when they do fall away, you can't conclude that they're insignificant. Now, all of this, obviously, is wearisome work. It is taxing, draining, person after person, battle after battle, tailspin after tailspin. You see people wandering away, it seems, all the time. They're upset in some way, some basic area of Christian life. They're struggling with some issue of theology. They're they're dealing with an issue of their conscience. They're beaten down with a sense of guilt. They're in some sort of anguish over their life or some sort of disappointment. It's always going on. It's always happening. And you can come to a point where you feel stretched to your limits and your time and your schedule, you feel like you can't do any more. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says it's important. These little ones are important. They are important to God. None of them are insignificant. Not the least. And this is what God does. You want to know how to be spiritually great? You dress yourself with childlike humility. You know what that childlike humility does? It makes you understand that you're not above anyone else. You're not above stumbling, and you're not above straying, and you're not above anyone else in the importance in the family of God. And so when any one of them fall away, you know and you understand that they are as significant as anyone else, even you. Paul says it in Galatians, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. That's the mark of your spiritual greatness. That's the mark of your spiritual health. Being like God and valuing every single believer. Father, these are weighty words for us because we all know those who stray and wonder. Too many times we have watched them silently and passively. We don't pick up the phone. We don't write the note. We don't go by for a visit. We never check on them. 
And when we do that, it is our own pride and selfishness. Lord, forgive us for that. That is not the way you want your church operating. That's not the way you want your believers behaving. That is not a mark of spiritual greatness. Give us the heart of our Savior. Give us a heart that understands the significance of every one of your little ones and give us a heart to pursue them when they stray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.